Uh, let me just do a quick reminder about what we're doing here. If you are a follower of Christ, uh, that means that you have surrendered your life to him and you have made all that there is about life about him. And so uh, as the Apostle Paul uh, instructed us, everything at that point becomes about Christ. Everything becomes about worship, worshiping Christ in whatever ways and in whatever opportunities. And so in that sense, this past week, if you were at work, you've been worshiping Christ all week at work while you did your work as unto him to honor him, to glorify him by the way that you work. Uh, your family person, the way that you've conducted your family life, the way that you've loved your spouse, the way that you have uh, engaged your children, uh, the way that you have been a neighbor, the way that you have been a friend. All these things are avenues and ways of worshiping Christ, glorifying Christ, drawing attention of others to Christ as you are salt and light in those kinds of ways. This time is a time where worshipers who have been worshiping scattered throughout all the week now worship gathered. We've all come together to worship. And in so doing, we will spend the next few minutes uh, looking at the word of God to further be instructed about what it means to be people of God who worship God. Okay, so that's where it's at. That's where we've been. Uh, That's where we're headed. Uh, let's think about what's been going on in our world uh, in the recent, last recent days and reflect on that for a moment. Uh, most of you have been following the story around James Holmes, and you are aware that this is the young man who allegedly uh, went into the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado at the midnight showing of uh, the new Batman movie and opened up fire and uh, killed 12 people and wounded many others. Uh, since his arrest and detainment, it's also been discovered that uh, as a doctoral student at the University of Colorado, uh, he had a professor there who's also a psychiatrist who, who apparently he was receiving treatment from and doing some counseling with. And you may also be aware that uh, a package was discovered in the mailroom at the university that had been addressed to the psychiatrist from Holmes. Uh, It's not altogether clear why the package had not been delivered, Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it was discovered in the mailroom. The police were notified. They came in and they carefully undid the package to see what the contents were because he had booby-trapped his apartment already. They suspected a booby-trapped package. As most of you are aware, upon getting into the contents of that package, there were indicators that uh, Holmes had planned the shooting that was uh, to take place at that movie theater and apparently was letting his psychiatrist know about that in some form or fashion. So there's a lot of info that we still don't know. There's a lot of pieces to the puzzle that still haven't been uh, you know, brought uh, for to bear, but that's kind of what we get at this point. So I say all that to say this. What kind of difference might it have made if a package had been delivered if a package had been opened and the contents had been discovered and someone got wind of the idea that a disturbed person was about to go on a shooting rampage, what kind of difference might that have made? What kind of life might have been saved? Now, I don't say all that to to be harsh about any of the staff at the university or the psychiatrist or anybody else that uh, is involved in any of that. I, I say all that to say this. What's it take 
for a warning to really make a difference, for a warning to be heeded. Because even if it had all been open, even if it had all been discovered, would anybody have taken it seriously? Would anybody have done anything? And of course, that's speculation, but here's more of the story from our culture. There have been school shootings that have been going on for the last several years. In similar kinds of ways, kids getting disturbed, not knowing how to handle some of the stuff that's pressuring their life, and something snaps and they do something that is horrific. And many of those instances were accompanied by warning signals and warning messages that went unheeded. Now, take it past the schools and go on to our government. There's plenty of evidence out there that there had been many warnings about what was to transpire at 9-11. And as people were still trying to figure out the credibility of those warnings and if we should do anything about those warnings, you know, trade centers came down. We could go on and on about, I mean, all the way back to the 40s and the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. There was a number of warnings about that. So what's it take for a warning to gain credibility to the point that we pay attention, to the point that we actually alter, make a decision and do something? What's it take? Something has to happen with that warning so that it's believable. So that we are convinced of the veracity and the truth of it. And it just so happens that all of us in this room are on a journey right now. Reading through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation across this year. And it just so happens in this summer we are reading through the prophets. And it just so happens that... The prophets are just filled with warning, both to their day and to our day, about what God is doing, about what we are doing, and how that's all going to turn out. And the question before us today is, have we come to a place where we respect Scripture, can be responsive to Scripture, can take the warnings of Scripture into our heart and into our decision-making, and it alter the course of our lives and the lives that are around us that we love about, love and care about. So, for example, for some time, warnings were given to the divided kingdom of the Hebrews. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. God sent prophets to both of those nations of Hebrews to say... You're breaking the heart of God. You're breaking the will of God. You are insulting the, the person of God. God is going to judge you if you do not repent, stop, and change. And they both were on a track of rebelliousness against God. And Israel, the northern kingdom, at a faster pace than Judah, the southern kingdom. So by the time we get to Hezekiah, whom you've been reading about over the last few days... The northern kingdom has already experienced the judgment of God. And God raised up another nation and allowed them to attack his people as a way of judging them. The Bible says that's exactly what took place. God used a pagan nation to punish his believing nation. And those ten tribes of the northern kingdom were absolutely wiped out. 
Many of them had been taken away to various points of Assyria to be servants and uh, to be slaves. And uh, the northern, the, what had been the northern kingdom was no more evermore. Hezekiah believed it. It, it became very credible to him at that point. And Hezekiah in the southern kingdom is one of the few good kings. And so you've just been reading about his reign and his reforms, how he would go and he would demolish the idols, the uh, Asherah, the Asheroth, the Baal. He would tear down those idols. He would try to put a stop to idolatry. He would try to uh, impact the uh, immorality that was going on in his kingdom. And it was a successful reform to levels. I mean, you can remove physical object idols, but that doesn't mean you remove it from the heart. And so people were still practicing some level of idolatry, even though they didn't have the wooden objects to focus their attention on. But it was all short lived. It was all very superficial, because as you have been reading and you'll read a little bit more about it, his son, Manasseh, was not only in the line of wicked kings He apparently was the most wicked king in all of Israeli history, in all of Jewish history. The atrocities of Manasseh, for a follower of God to look at that, is truly heart-wrenching and heartbreaking. It's unbelievable to me. The things that Manasseh did and how he led the people into greater idolatry, greater adultery against the Lord, sinfulness, brokenness, fallenness, to the point that he even practiced and advocated the practice of child sacrifice. Offering up one of his own sons, as you see in that picture. His son, Amnon, was uh, similar in a, in a horrific, awful kind of way. His reign was very short-lived. Manasseh's was long. And Amnon was about two years, and he was assassinated. And that put the next in line on the throne as an eight-year-old, a guy named Josiah. And that's where you'll do some more reading this week. And Josiah, out of all of that time of the kings and the chronicles and uh, the prophets and so on, is like my favorite character in there. He is a major reformer. He has a heart for God, and it's obvious uh, about the kind of mentoring and tutelage that he had as a kid, not from his father or grandfather, but from priests and prophets who were able to have a voice into his ear. Talk about what God does with the transformation of a youth, of a teenager. By the time this guy is 16 years old, he's leading a major reform across the whole nation. He's tearing down the Baal, the Ashtaroth, all these little idols that uh, we've been talking about for these last couple of weeks, if you've forgotten what that was like. These objects of, of their, he's tearing them down all over the countryside. He is ushering in all kinds of reforms. And as this continues, when you get to about 622 BC, an amazing thing happens in this whole Reformation. The priests are in the temple, cleaning up the temple because it's fallen into such disrepair and such disuse. Manasseh had even put up idols in the temple. So in this massive cleansing of the temple, one of the priests discovers the scriptures. This is how far removed the people had gotten from God. 
They had lost the books of the law. Some say it was just the book of Deuteronomy. Some say it was the entire five books of the Pentateuch. We don't know exactly what it was. But somehow that had been misplaced and people didn't even know that they didn't have these scriptures. Until this priest discovered them, probably in a little panel called Geniza, which is, uh, I mean, in those days when your scriptures, your scrolls got old, you didn't just toss them away. They're holy. They're sacred. And so they would create these little panels in the wall. They would put old uh, scriptures that were getting tattered into this hole. Then they would cover it up and it would just look like a, a part of the wall. Well, apparently somebody saw, hey, here's a Geniza, open it up, and here, takes out a scroll, and they're going, oh, my goodness. He starts reading the scriptures that he's not familiar with, and he's like, the king must know about this. So they take the scriptures, the newly found ancient scriptures, to Josiah, and he reads these things, and he just begins to weep. He begins to tear his clothes. He begins to, to cry out to the Lord, oh, we have become so sinful. We've become so wayward. We have broken your heart, your will, your ways to such an extent. We deserve your judgment. Please have mercy. And he only amplified the Reformation effort. Can anybody heed a warning? Hezekiah and Josiah saw what happened to the northern kingdom, and they paid attention. You're going to read about Nahum this week. He'll come along, and he'll speak prophecies against Nineveh, that God's going to judge Nineveh. And Josiah believes that he watches the greatest nation in his day crumble because of God. He sees and hears the warnings. He heeds them. He leads a great reformation that goes on in his own life, and in his country. What's the outcome of all that? What's the result of all that? You're going to read more about that in Second Kings and Second Chronicles. Let's just take a glimpse of it. In Second Kings 23, here's what God says to Josiah. Still the Lord did not return from the burning of his great wrath. See, God's been saying all along, I'm going to have to judge it. I'm going to have to judge this. I mean, you guys have just gone to such an extent. I have to judge it. I can't let that kind of unholiness go. Still, the Lord did not return from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight. I'm still going to judge Judah. As I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Now, that's a hard word. You've led this reformation. Your life has been transformed. Many other lives have been transformed. There's still, though, a lot of double lives going on out there. And God says, I still have to judge. And I'm going to judge the nation of Judah, even the city of Jerusalem, even the temple and house of God. I'm going to judge it all. Then when you get into Second Chronicles chapter 34, we find out God says to Josiah, because your heart was tender 
And you humbled yourself before God when you heard His words against this place and its inhabitants. And you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. You shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. Now this happened for Hezekiah. It also happened for Josiah. They got their own lives and hearts right with God, and they led as many people as as they could lead to get their hearts and their lives right with God. And because of that, God didn't change His mind on judging. He just delayed it until after their time. Now, I'm... Before I get into what that what does that mean for you and me today, let me say one other thing. When it started getting really, really hard, and the judgment of God began to be felt across the nation, that's when Isaiah begins to speak into the whole situation. And at that time, uh, he tries to, to let them know why God is doing what they are doing. It's also the time that Zephaniah began to speak into the situation. And so we're going to take a little time to look at exactly what Zephaniah said. There, there are a number of parallels to what I, uh, Zephaniah is uh, highlighting in the lives of uh, the Judeans to our own time and our own day. And I want to see if you can see those as I see them. So if you will, look with me in Zephaniah chapter 1. I should have given you a head start on that. Um, but if you've been making your way through, you're, you're close to it. Just turn a few more pages. Right after Habakkuk, if that helps. Uh, Table of contents do help. All right, chapter 1. We're going to read about 16 verses. So please don't leave us at this point, all right? Stay with it. So the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. This guy is in the descendants of Hezekiah. So he's a distant relative of Josiah. So he's a prophet. In the days of Josiah, the son of Amnon, king of Judah, I will utterly sweep, this is God speaking, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That's harsh. That's hard work. God says, I'm about to clean house. Now, you just have to put yourself in the shoes of the prophet for a moment. Nobody likes to give these kinds of messages. Nobody likes to say these kinds of things from the Lord. Verse 4 and following. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, the Judean priest, And those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. And those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guest. Let me stop there. What he's talked about right here is, I'm going to have to judge idolatry. Here's, here are the reasons why judgment's going to happen. One, idolatry. 
Not only have you pursued Baal, not only have you pursued the Ashtaroth, not only have you um, gone after the sun, moon, and stars, and you know the zodiac, all these other kinds of things. But many of you have played a game where you've tried to be, as we've already heard a couple of times in here today, double-minded. And you've also tried to worship Milcom. Other words, uh, other versions uh, reflected as Molech. That's an Assyrian God. And Yahweh. And Jehovah God. And so you've tried, to, you've tried to play it both ways. You've tried to give proper attention to what the culture says. is where you get significance and help and direction and life. And you've also tried to pay attention to God too. And I'm going to judge that kind of idolatry. And then he moves on to, in verse 8 to government officials. And he says, on the, on the day of the Lord, which is a phrase throughout the prophets, the day of the Lord is the day of judgment. Not only in that time, but there's an ultimate day of the Lord that we'll talk about in just a minute. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. So, all those who are in places of power, position, influence... Governmental leaders. I'm going to judge because of the way they have governed you. I'm going to judge because of the way they have not led you in the right direction and in the right ways. And uh, verse 9, what we could just call uh, simply oppressors, people who have held other people down to their own advantage. Verse 9, on that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. In verse 10, uh, we're going to get into how business has ripped people off. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. The fish gate led into the market, led to where all the merchandising took place. A wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are, are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. And at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Now, God says, I'm also going to judge just because of those who don't care. I'm going to judge those who are just stinking apathetic. Maybe God will move. Who knows? Who cares? Maybe God won't move. Who knows? Who cares? I'm going to judge because of that kind of apathy. I've given too much. I've revealed too much. I've shown too much. I have been merciful too much for you to be that apathetic about my presence in the world. Verse 13, their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near. It's hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Now, friend... That day of the Lord is a refrain through all the prophets that is specific to that day, to that culture, but it also has a double meaning. It also speaks of a futuristic day of the Lord. 
We're also going to read about God doing a saving remnant kind of work in that day. But he also will use that language to point to a future day where he will also do a saving remnant kind of work. Are you already getting some parallels? Are you already seeing some application? Zephaniah not only gives the warning, but he says, now if any of you are going to pay attention, if any of you will heed the warning, here's what you'll want to do. You will want to seek the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 3. Humbly, all your heart, single-minded, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. And then when you get into chapter 3, he'll give a little glimpse of hope. He'll say, if you seek the Lord, if you repent, if you turn to Him, there will be a day of rejoicing. There will be a day of God restoring and rebuilding and renewing. But you must seek the Lord. Now, in the middle of all this hard stuff, when when it all begins to come down, around 587, God raises up Babylonia. They become a mighty nation. He uses them to come over to Judah and to destroy Judah, to destroy Jerusalem, and to destroy the temple. In the middle of all that, everybody's going, Why, God? Why, God? Why are you doing this? Where are you? Why are you helping? When there's been all these years of warning ahead of time. So Isaiah puts it to them this way in chapter 59. He said, The Lord's hand is not shortened so that it can't save This isn't a matter of God not being able to help us at this time. It's not a matter of His ear is dull and it can't hear. He knows exactly what's going on. He hears your cries. He hears your wailing. But your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Further, in verses 14 and 15, he says... Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. The truth has stumbled in the public squares. Out in the culture, out in the public conversation, truth has stumbled. It doesn't stand anymore. Nobody stands for truth. The uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil, he who departs from evil, Those who will heed the warning, those who will repent, those who will take God seriously, those who are single-minded, they then will become like prey to others. That's a hard day. That's a hard word. That's some, some hard circumstances. Let's talk about today. Because, friend, this has been a blessed nation. It has been founded on the person, word, and principles of God. We've already had this conversation many times. So, again, I don't believe everybody was a Christian in the founding of the country. I don't believe every founding father was a Christian. But certainly that Judeo-Christian ethic, worldview, mentality dominated the founding of this country. And God has been good to this country and God has been 
manifest in this country. He has done marvelous things in us and through us for the rest of this world. He has blessed us and made us a blessing to others. And through the years, there has been a drift. We've talked about it in here many times. So that we are not today where we have been in times past in terms of proximity to Him, closeness to Him on the same page as the Lord God. And we would do well to hear the warnings of the old prophets as well as the New Testament writers who say to us, such living, such waywardness cannot go unpunished. It can't be not judged. As much as we love this country and as grateful as we are to be able to live here and enjoy the freedoms that are part of this country and the prosperity that's part of this country, etc., this country is headed toward a judgment by God at some point. It cannot be, given all the weight of Scripture, all the historical precedents, it cannot be any other thing. And so the kind of the question today is, is will you be a Hezekiah? Will you be a Josiah? Will you be someone who sees that, gets that, and lives in such a way that God delays that day? Not just so that we don't have it hard or that our children don't have it hard, although that's important to me. But so that there is greater opportunity for others to hear the gospel to hear the good news about God's love for us, God's plan for us, and God's saving grace that He wants to give to us. And that God would use us as a nation, as a collective people, to continue to be bearers of that kind of good news around this globe. And bearers of His blessing around this globe. Now, if you've been following any of the conversation in our culture over the last few days, then you are aware of what I would just call a great example of how Isaiah was making commentary about truth in the culture. That for the day of Judah, as well as the day for any other society that would dare to follow God in their time, Waywardness will result in a point where truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil, he who seeks to live in that truth, as it's departing all around him, will be like prey to others. So, some of you have been following the story that's been going on um, with the Chick-fil-A Corporation. And we don't have that out here. And so some of you probably have never seen it, heard it, uh, done business there. If you've ever traveled in the south and Midwest, you've no doubt seen it uh, and enjoyed their chicken sandwich. Um, but there was an interview that happened with the chief executive, Chick-fil-A, uh, a few days ago. And in that interview... Uh, they were talking about how that company's corporate culture is built on the Bible. 
And that's why that business has, from day one back in the 40s till now, never been open for business on Sundays. They want their employees to be able to have the opportunity to worship, go to church, follow God, if that's a value to them. Obviously, they don't mandate that. They don't make anybody do that, but they give that opportunity for their employees. So that's been a a part of their practice and a number of other Christian principles in terms of honesty and dedication and service Things like that. Their uh, company mission and their company uh, motto, all those kinds of things, have to do with how you treat people with dignity and with respect, irrespective of their creed or their culture or their race or even their sexuality. They've also uh, created a sizable foundation which has given uh, a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars, to a number of charitable causes, one of which is... Uh, foundation for the strengthening and the enriching of marriages and families. And so in this interview, the interviewer said to Dan Cathy, the chief executive officer, so I'm guessing you probably take a few hits every now and then because your company is so pro-family and about uh, you know working with marriages and families the way that you do. And he said something to this effect, yeah, guilty as charged. We're all about helping the family, helping the marriage. Uh, We believe in the biblical definition of marriage. And we believe that it's a lifetime kind of relationship. We're a family-run business. All of us are in our first marriages. We give God credit for building our families the way that he has. And we just we long to see that happen for other marriages and other families as well. End of quote. A number of media agencies took that pro-family statement and basically paraphrased it to say Dan Cathy's against gay marriage. Now, because he holds to a biblical view of marriage, one man, one woman for a lifetime, he does not favor gay marriage, but that's not what he said. But nevertheless, the media took off with that. And uh, the next thing you know, markets that Chick-fil-A is now beginning to move into, because they've primarily been in the South and Midwest, now they're moving into the Northeast. I've uh, been talking about the, the West and the Northwest. Uh, some of those outlets are now saying, we're going to do everything we can to prevent you from moving into our market. The mayor of Boston said, you're not welcome here. The mayor of Chicago said, you're not welcome here. Uh, They're on a number of university campuses, and some of those university students have risen up and said, we don't want you here anymore. We'd like for you to pull your franchise out of here. And so there have been follow-up conversations and follow-up interviews. Kathy, you want to go back on the record? you want to try to clean up some of this mess that you're taking a stand about your Christian principles and values has created? And so in an interview on a radio show, as all this was brought up and the firestorm that it's created was underscored in yellow, said, you know, what would you want to say about it? And Kathy did not spin, did not soften, did not modify, but rather went on to say, I pray God's mercy on our generation that has such a prideful, arrogant attitude to think that we have the audacity to define what marriage is about. 
And he has been skewered in the public arena because of that position. You know, I think it's only an indicator of more that's to come. I think it's only an indicator of how we're going to see this happen time and time again. For anyone that will take a stand, a gentleman's stand, a kind, a uh, not-in-your-face, not-harsh uh, kind of stand, but just a, here's where I am. We're only going to see this become more and more difficult. And it raises the issue of whose are you going to be? Are you going to be the Lord's person or this culture's? And this is just one issue of many issues that we could talk about. And I I want to be as clear with you as I know how to be clear. I don't think Dan Cathy or the Cathy family or the Chick-fil-A Corporation is anti-gay, homophobic, fundamentalist, hate mongers, or anything that they've been charged with being. I don't think they are. I've heard them many times through the years. I've read a lot of their stuff. I know a lot of people that have been up close to their corporation and to their corporate culture. That's just not who they are. And to say that I believe the Bible, I stand on scriptural teaching and practices, is not equal to hate. It just isn't. As much as our culture wants to make it that, that's not what it is. And so not too long ago, I was in a conversation with a friend of mine who has a son that is gay. And he was talking to me about my own beliefs and about this church. And he's looking for a church. I just wish there was some place that, you know, I could go and be accepted and and experience God and that kind of thing. And he said um, something to me to the effect of, If I came to your church and everybody in your church found out that my son is gay, what would they do? How would they treat me? And I said, you know, I can't speak for everybody. I know a whole lot of the people in Meadowbrook. I know a whole lot about their hearts and their their disposition about things. I think that you show up and and everyone finds out at some point your son is gay. I think they just embrace you. I think they just love you. I think they just care about you and care about your son. Well, what if he came with me sometime and, and, you know, you've got a gay person in your church. What about that? I'm like, that's fine. We'd be glad to have him here. But you think he's broken. You think that whole uh, idea about gayness is broken. And I said, man, you've got to understand. Where I come from, our worldview is that everything is broken. Everybody is broken. I'm busted. We're busted. And we consider this to be a place where we can come up close and personal with God in our brokenness. And He will do something with us and for us toward life and wholeness. Pause. He said, I'm coming to your church. Now, I don't know when or if that'll happen. And I trust that if and when it does, 
that you will be with him, toward him, and his family the way I've just described. But that doesn't change the fact that biblically, I think marriage is about a man and a woman in a committed relationship unto God for the entirety of their lifetime. Now, some time ago, a pastor was invited into the State House of Representatives to offer an invocation for the day. Several states still have that practice where a minister is recognized as the chaplain of the day. He comes in, he offers a prayer over the House of Representatives, over the House of the Senate, and then they conduct their business. And so that happened A few years ago, in another state, the minister was invited. And usually, it's the kind of prayer that uh, you basically, you know, don't give any attention to. Everybody just kind of tolerates it till it's over, and then they get down to business. But on this particular day, he prayed a serious prayer of repentance. And I want to share some of that with you. This is what he prayed before the House of Representatives. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness, to seek your direction and your guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that's exactly what we've done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium. We've inverted our values. And so we confess That we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word. We called it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and we call it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and we call it the lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and we call it welfare. We have killed our unborn and we call it choice. We have shot abortionists and we call it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and we call it building self-esteem. We have abused power and we call it political. Political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and we call it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and we call it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and we call it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. I think his prayer was precisely the prayer that we need to be praying today. Precisely the state of the heart that should be reflected toward a holy God. Judgment is going to happen to this country sometime. Ruth Graham said it. I've quoted it many times. If God doesn't judge America, He will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
It's going to come sometime. It has to. One of the issues before us today is will we be a godly people who humbly walk with our Lord in such a way that He would delay and He would tarry that judgment so that more good, so that more saving grace, so that more kingdom work can happen in that, in that period of time of delay. Here's what uh, Isaiah said about the coming of Jesus, that ultimate suffering servant, that He would be in our midst as the Spirit of the Lord is upon Him. Because the Lord has anointed Him to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance from our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now, ultimately, that's been fulfilled and is being fulfilled in Jesus. Where we get to be a people of hope, we get to be a people of confidence, that we can know God through Christ, we can live with God through Christ, we can make a difference in this world and in our culture through Christ, as long as we live. So, how do you respond to what we've been talking about? I'd encourage you in the first place to admit you're a sinner, we're sinners. I need to repent. We need to repent. Believing that Jesus, God's Son, is the one who holds forgiveness. He holds the power to forgive because it's against Him that we have offended. And to confess that we believe in Him to redeem us, to save us, to transform and rebuild us. as Savior and Lord. Let me pray for us. So, Father, uh, like your ancient people, we have heard a hard word today. And uh, like the people of old, we struggle to hear it well. We struggle to heed it. And we confess our need, unless your Spirit gives us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a mind to comprehend, we can't get there. And so would you bless us in that way? Would you bless us to be able to behold truth? To stand on truth? Whatever the cost that comes with truth. To be your people. To be salt in a decaying culture, to be light in the midst of darkness, to be men and women of God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So on that connection card, maybe you want to respond to the Lord. Write down a little thing about, hey... I am giving my heart to Christ in this kind of way. Or I'm renewing. Or I'm repenting. Or I am responding to God in this way. Just specifically write something there that we can pray for you about. Make a commitment. Put it there. We'll pray for you. This is also when we worship with our tithes. 
and our offerings, our ushers will come. Father, we give gifts to you as well as commitments to you. In Jesus' name, amen.